Good morning, everyone, and welcome to morning worship at Hillhead, and a very happy new year to everyone. This is Epiphany, the Sunday on which we specially remember the wise men, so luckily we've got one with us this morning. We welcome our guest preacher, the Reverend Alan Donaldson, General Director of the Baptist Union of Scotland. If you haven't met him before, you've probably seen his photograph on the Connect magazine or on some of the other publications from the Baptist Union, but this morning is your chance to meet him face to face, so when we get to tea and coffee after the service, please make sure you have a chance to chat with Alan. Thank you, Anne, for your welcome. I want to read from Matthew chapter 1 as our call to worship. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God is with us right now as we gather in his name, as his word promises us that he will be here as we gather. Reading this morning is from Matthew chapter 28, starting at verse 16. Matthew 28, verse 16. The eleven disciples made their way to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to meet him. When he saw them, they knelt in worship, though some were doubtful. Jesus came near and said to them, Full authority in heaven and on earth has been committed to me. Go therefore to all nations and make them my disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. I will be with you always to the end of time. Larry Walters was not a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was a 33-year-old man who decided he wanted to see his neighborhood from a different perspective. He went down to the local army surplus store one morning. He bought 45 used weather balloons. And that afternoon, he strapped himself into his garden chair, along with a six-pack of beer, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, and a little pop gun, assuming that he might shoot the weather balloons that his friends were now tying to the chair one by one when he wanted to descend back down to the ground. Walters assumed that the balloons would lift him some hundred feet in the air. He miscalculated. He was no engineer. He soared to 11,000 feet right into the flight path for Los Angeles International Airport. They had to close the runway for two hours in the afternoon, thus causing chaos throughout the United States of America. He was a bit scared at 11,000 feet to shoot the balloons, so he waited till the helium dissipated and he reduced back down to earth, and uh, he was arrested on his arrival. Uh, Once he had been released from the police, the journalists and the press were all waiting for him with their news vans, and they had three questions basically for him. Were you scared? Yes. Would you do it again? Uh, No. And thirdly, why did you do it? And it was that answer to that third question that caught my imagination when I was thinking of today. He said, he did it because you can't just sit there. You can't just sit there. And that, of course, is the temptation for many people. 
to simply sit back, relax, enjoy the ride. Just uh, take life as it is. And maybe chase the mountaintop experiences as a, as a Christian. Become a consumer of Christianity. Select the style of church that you like to attend. The one with the most appropriate minister for your needs. The one that does the right things for you. Shop for the multitude of extra things that are now available for Christians. From the latest software to download to your iPad. Or the latest digital re-recording of the most ancient and most beautiful music. So many Christians today chasing the experience, chasing something that meets their needs. But for Jesus, mountaintop experiences were not the goal. He took his disciples up mountains, according to Matthew, for several reasons. Uh, For moments of inspiration, for life-changing instruction that would shape what they did back down at earth level. They went up the mountain for the Sermon on the Mount, for teaching the new ethics of Jesus. They went up the mountain and experienced the transfiguration. Oh, they wanted to stay at that one, but Jesus wouldn't let them. It was just a moment to return to earth. They went up the mountain to observe the crucifixion. And now we find them in Matthew 28. They're up the mountain again to receive their commissioning. Think about it for a few minutes. How would these disciples have been feeling? I often try to put myself into these stories and just think, what must it have been like on that day to be a disciple of Jesus? The first thing that was striking from the Bible reading was there were only 11 of them. We often think of the 12 disciples, but on this occasion there are 11. Judas is missing. Judas has betrayed Jesus. He's committed suicide caught up by the guilt of doing the betrayal and they've walked to Galilee a week's walk from Jerusalem what have they been thinking about for a week it's a lot of time to think you walk the West Highland Way that's a week's walk you know how much time you've got to think and to talk to your companions on the way nothing else to do they've been thinking for a week musing there's only 11 now Were they carrying thoughts of frustration? Were they thinking thoughts like it's over? The adventure is finished? Maybe there were some who were optimistic, some who were pessimistic. Certainly when Jesus turns up, there's a mixture of worship and doubt I'm not actually sure what the text is saying there. It's either saying they all worshipped, and while they were worshipping, some of them were doubting in their minds, or it's saying that some worshipped and others couldn't worship because the doubting was so severe. We're not quite sure what the text is saying. But the reality is, Jesus is calling all of them to go and make disciples, no matter what this fragility of their faith is at the time. Jesus is calling them here to be a disciple and to make a disciple. 
that Galilee is not the end. Even if they thought they were just traveling home to fish again, this is not the end. He's just brought them back to the place where he first met them to recommission them, to send them out again for the next stage of the journey. Be they full of faith or struggling with doubt, they are called to make disciples. And I would want simply to recognize at this point, that that means there's hope for all of us. There's a place for all of us. Because, well, I don't know about you, but my motives are rarely pure. Our feelings can be turbulent. One moment our faith can be strong, at other times it can be weak. It can go through times of flourishing, it can go through times of doubt. Yet here's a picture of Christ meeting his disciples People like us, welcoming his disciples like us, commissioning disciples like us, who are in that kind of mixed up place, who know they've not got it all together. And this challenge to be a disciple and to make a disciple is for all of us, no matter where we are at at this particular time in our faith walk. So let's just for a few moments look at the nature of disciple-making as characterized in this passage in four ways, each of them highlighted by the word all. And we'll look just briefly at all of them. We start with all authority. All authority in heaven and on earth is given to the disciples. Authority is an important word in Matthew's gospel. He's constantly telling us about the authority of Jesus. Jesus is one who teaches with authority. He's one who does miracles with authority. He's one who forgives sins with authority. And his resurrection has just proved that he has authority even over death. Earlier on in the the gospel, he has given his authority to his disciples to go to the people of Israel and cast out demons and heal the sick, and to do so in Jesus' name and by his authority. What's implicit in this command to make disciples is that we do it in Jesus' name with his authority, all authority. As disciples, we are authorized to teach and baptize and heal and restore. This is the authority that has been given us. It's authority that is transformative in the disciple-making process. Without his authority, all of this would be impossible. But with him, all things, all things are possible. This is the antidote for our frailty, for our doubt, for our days of weakness. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. He cannot be defeated, and he gives it to us. Paul, the apostle, takes hold of this teaching in Ephesians 3.20 when he writes, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. This is Paul working out this teaching. If all authority has been given to us, then he can do more than we even imagine. As adults, we struggle with this, I think, more than kids. 
Kids often teach us the way on this stuff. Many years ago, I was giving a group of five and six-year-olds. I had 200 of them to look after in one big marquee. It was 100 degrees outside, and I was giving them a drink of juice. You know, you didn't want them to dehydrate. Their parents were going to come back and get them in three hours' time, and I wanted to return them all healthy. So I produced 200 cups of orange juice, and I was passing out the 200 cups of orange juice to all these kids. They were all sitting in little groups. It was great, all organized, very peaceful. And this one wee five-year-old went, no, thank you. And our little five-year-old friend sitting next to this little girl turned to her friend and said, why don't you want the juice? We all need juice. It's very, very hot. She said, but I've got cold sores. And she pointed to the cold sores around her lips and she said, that will make my lips sting. And a little friend that she said it to stretched out her hand and said, in Jesus' name, be healed. I've got to say, I was a bit surprised. I was the minister, I was the grown-up. But here was a little five-year-old, in Jesus' name, be healed, and took her hand from her lips and put it up in the air and said, Alan, said, yeah, my friend needs juice now. Not a doubt. Not a flicker of a doubt in her mind. And I brought the juice over and our friend drank the juice without it stinging. She turned up the next day. There were no cold sores on her lips left. Christ is able to do more than we ask or imagine. This is our invitation to dream people. This is our invitation to dream as disciple-making disciples. To dream dreams at the beginning of a new year. To get a new perspective. To think, what could Christ actually do through me as he's given me this authority? Well, that's the first all. The second all, all authority is given to go to all nations. It's the range of disciple-making territory. Earlier in Matthew, they were told to go to the people of Israel, but they weren't allowed to go to Samaritans, and they weren't allowed to go to Gentiles. Now the disciples are told they can go to all nations, away from the comfort of their own place and their own people, the ones they know. Now they can go to all places. We're familiar with the phrase, charity begins at home. Yeah, we all know that phrase. We all know what it means. You should take care of your family and the people close to you before you worry about helping other people. But even if it does begin at home, we all know that it doesn't end there. We all know that we need to help others further afield. Well, even if disciple-making began in Israel, it can't stay there. It's now to all people in all places at all times. In fact, Matthew has really been into this. He's had this goal in mind throughout his gospel. He's the writer who tells us in his gospel about the non-Jews in Jesus' family tree on page one of his gospel. He's the one that tells us about the Magi visiting and the escape to Egypt. He's the one that every time he talks about Galilee, he calls it Galilee of the Gentiles. He's the one that tells us about the Roman centurion whose servant is healed, the demon-possessed man and the pigs. And of course, he himself was one of society's outcasts. He was a tax collector. Nobody wanted anything to do with Matthew. Matthew's always been concerned that in showing us that Jesus' love was for others, for everyone, no exceptions. So for the disciples, they are now to go beyond the old boundaries, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. 
And here again is the challenge for us. It's not that we're to neglect the challenge of making disciples amongst our friends and our family and our colleagues and our neighbors, people who we share common interests with. It's just that that's not the end. We're called to move out of our comfort zones to the people and places we know less about. Maybe those we are more naturally suspicious of because we don't know them. I've been watching something interesting happening at Kirkintilloch Baptist Church where I say my family go regularly and I go occasionally. It's where I'm a member, but maybe once a month I manage to turn up there. There's been something very interesting happening uh, uh, there. I mean, I, I don't know if any of you know Kirkintilloch. It's a, a large church. Maybe three or four hundred would turn up at the two morning services that they have. Very middle class church. Uh, and there are about 30 people in the last year who have started coming to the church who are called the New Creations Group, who are, well, they are not middle class. In fact, most of them have never had a job in their life. So it would be hard to even say they were working class. Most of them have addiction issues from the past. Most of them have a criminal record. And most of them have spent time in prison. And here is this group of 30 people coming along to this very different type of church with very different people. And these folks are having to learn to love one another as God's people. And it's been fascinating to watch something new happening in the midst of that congregation. People they never thought of reaching a year ago who are now part of their family, who are now becoming disciples. I was hearing... Uh, just the tail end of last year, about new opportunities for, for disciples to go to North Korea and become influencers of the Korean society's high-end people's children, the, the, the government officials' children, to influence them, disciples of Jesus, being given that opportunity, called to go to all places, hospitable and inhospitable, familiar and unfamiliar to people we don't know or understand and to make disciples. And you know, you can even do that in your own home. I met a minister recently in in London, uh, Sue. Her job is pastor of radical hospitality. I'd never come across one of them before. I thought, I need to find out more about what that is. I said, what does the pastor of radical hospitality do in the church? Oh, I support those who do fostering, adoption, homeless care, asylum care, and I help people house victims of domestic abuse. Wow. Helping make disciples of the stranger, even within your own home. Our calling is to make disciples in all places, not just the ones we're familiar with. And then the passage goes on, baptizing them and teaching them to obey all things. So this is how this disciple-making process happens. We know that we go with all authority. We know we go to all people in all places. But this is how it happens. Baptism, the sign of conversion. Baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Simply saying, you're aligning yourself with a new Lord. You're under new management. You're living under Christ's rule. This is the first call on anyone who would follow Christ. 
It's been great to follow news of the baptisms that have happened in this church in the past year. In fact, in Connect Magazine, our Baptist Union of Scotland magazine, this month we've got a photograph, provided by Ken, I think, of a baptism happening amongst you. This is what disciple-making is all about. People going through those waters saying we're dying to our own old way of living and we're being brought to life as new disciples who have a new Lord in their life and who we're following in a new way. You know, within evangelical systems, most people have followed the Billy Graham tradition of calling people forward to pray the sinner's prayer of repentance and faith, knowing that they that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But the authentic mark of discipleship is baptism by immersion, according to the Scriptures. The sign that they've died and now are alive in Christ. But notice it says they also need to be taught all things. Baptism wasn't the end. It was just the beginning. Baptized and then taught all things. You see, we'll never live under the lordship of Jesus unless we know what his teaching is and understand it. Because his teaching was transformative. His teaching was to do things that that aren't really natural for us to do. When we're disciples, we're expected to live kind of counterculturally, counterintuitive at times. Let me give you a wee example. People of Glasgow, general people of Glasgow, they pray all of the time. I don't doubt it for one minute. When you need something, people in Glasgow pray. When they are sick and in the hospital, people pray. When their friend is in need, people will pray. When there's a tragedy in the city like there was at the Clutha, people turned in and prayed. They they lit candles and said a word of prayer. It's quite natural to pray like that. It's not so natural to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. It doesn't trip off the tongue in the same way, unless you've been just taught the words. The agile idea of praying prayers of adoration and recognizing the wonder and the majesty of God. Folks don't generally tend to fall into that. They tend to need to be taught how to pray in that way. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. There's something that's not that natural. Forgiveness. We need to be taught to forgive. Naturally, we hold grudges. Naturally, we demand retribution and an apology. Jesus says, forgive one another. Generosity. I I don't mean just taking the loose change out of our pocket or setting up an affordable direct debit, but generosity down to the last two coins. That's what Jesus teaches. That's not natural. Servanthood. Washing people's feet. We are to teach an ethic of a descending way, as Henry Nouwen puts it. In a world that's upwardly mobile, we are called to decrease. Baptism's act of dying to self has a lifestyle birth in being raised to new life in Christ that is unnatural but is essential for the disciple. And so we need to teach all things. And then finally, there's always present. 
None of this disciple-making would be possible without the blessing that I think is more familiar on the other side of the city. You'll never walk alone. That's the blessing of this passage. This is where we actually connect back into Christmas. Emmanuel. I asked somebody this week, it was actually my stepfather, I said to him, Jimmy, tell me, how many times is Emmanuel mentioned in the Bible? You've been singing a lot about it this Christmas. How many times is it mentioned in the Bible? You can think of your own answer in your head just now. And he went, oh, I don't know, 50, 60 times. It's very familiar. It's all over the place. Sing it all the time. I said, yeah, once. He said, sorry, once? What, what, what's once? Is it Emmanuel mentioned once. Matthew's gospel quoting Isaiah. So, okay, twice. <laughs> Isaiah mentions Emmanuel and Matthew picks up that quotation. It's the only mention of it in the Bible. But it's a familiar, familiar word. It reminds us God is with us always. It's a big thing for Matthew. He actually mentions it in chapter 1. He picks it up in that little verse in the middle where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am in their midst. Kind of Emmanuel feeling there. And then he picks up the same theme at the very end of his gospel. I am with you always. You see, we don't make disciples alone. He's gone ahead of us. His is enabling presence and it's there already where we aren't yet. My wife and I, way back in 1992, before we had any children, went wandering off to the Soviet Union. It had just all opened up. It was fantastic. And we lived in the city of Moscow permanently for for about six months, although we traveled in and out for a few months before that. And we met a lot of the Christians there who had just come out of a time of persecution, some of them just released from prison, others who had lived their faith kind of underground during that time. For the first time in most of their living memory, they were allowed to make disciples of others. They were actually allowed to engage in this disciple-making process. They were allowed to baptize people for the first time. They were allowed to teach them the things of Jesus. That included their children. That had been one of the biggest burdens on them all. They had never been allowed to have Sunday school. Even in the registered churches, the adults could come, but you couldn't do things for children. That was not allowed. Now they could make disciples of their children. And they constantly quoted the words of the Psalms to us. They would say, this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. They recognized that this whole disciple making that they were allowed to be involved in now was not not about them. They said, this is the Lord's doing. And it's marvelous in our eyes. Disciple making is always the Lord's doing. It always requires his presence and if we go back to the beginning, his authority. But can we imagine at the start of this year playing our part in it? As disciples believing and doubting, as disciples confident or withdrawn, you and me going to inhospitable places challenging people and baptizing them. Teaching them to obey all things. The descending way. The countercultural way. This is our challenge. 
But praise God, we're equipped with his authority. We're equipped with his presence to meet the challenge. So I want to stop the sermon there. And I want to ask you to imagine, as Paul did, imagine what it might be like for you to make disciples in this coming year. You personally, not as a congregation corporately. With your faith and your doubts and your worries and your hopes, what could it mean for you to make disciples of Christ this coming year at home? At work? On the streets of Glasgow? Maybe in a faraway place? And while you're thinking that through, I want to play some music. While you dream about how God can empower you to be a disciple maker, I want to play some music. Normally you would play quiet music so that people can reflect quietly. I want to play loud music. Um, It's the Hallelujah Chorus. Because it kind of captures this passage. The Lord God, omnipotent, reigneth forever and ever and ever. His presence always with us. And hopefully the rousingness of the Hallelujah Chorus will arouse your imagination to think about things that you had never even thought about before, of how God could use you with all his authority and his always presence to make disciples in 2014. Let's just think together. Gracious God, we bring you first our heartfelt thanks that you have brought us safely through the year that is past. We may have had difficult moments or days, but your grace was sufficient for our need. We have much to be grateful for. As we cast our minds back, we see much for which we need to ask for your forgiveness. Youngsters, we could have helped, but we didn't take the time. Lonely friends, we've not visited. Charities, we should have supported, but we held on to the money you gave us to share. Chances to discuss our faith that we let slip. Prayers requested, but ignored. Opportunities to develop skills that would be useful in the community but neglected. Forgive us, Heavenly Father. Save us from using pious phrases, but living a pagan, self-centered life. From coming regularly to worship, but living six days a week as if we were not Christians. From treating the Bible as an optional extra, without seeking the great truths in its pages. From forgetting that Christ called us to be his committed followers and to bring others to honour him too.
We've been horrified in this past year at much we've seen on our television screens, and we humbly beg you now to have mercy on those whose lives are being turned upside down, often through no fault of their own. We pray earnestly for the people of Syria and the Philippines, of Palestine and Israel, of Sudan and Somalia, Egypt and North Africa, northern Nigeria, Pakistan and Sri Lanka, and for countless individuals whose lives have been disrupted by violence and bereavement, by flood and disaster, by petty selfishness as well as major crime, Lord, hear our prayer for all in distress and for all who have gone bravely as relief workers to minister to human need in any place. We also remember before you those in our own congregation who are unwell. Althea Blacker, Netta Boswell, Jean Delmore, Kirsten Bowie, and others we know individually. Tomorrow is the day we call Epiphany to celebrate the revelation of Christ to the wise men. We too would celebrate the coming of Jesus as the light of the world. Let his light shine, let his light be in our minds to scatter the shadows of our folly, our confusion, our resistance to the truth. Shine brightly, star of God, and guide our wandering world to where a Prince of Peace was born. So now we acknowledge your call to each of us in our own circumstances to be ready to reveal Christ to those around us. You have given us a year of new possibilities, times to make good the faults and failures of the past, time to relate more adequately to our neighbour, to be more generous with the time and energy and resources you have made available to us. Gracious God, give us, we pray, the will to be what you made us to be, servants, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.